Welcome back to our podcast series, The Idea of Greece. Today, we bring you our fifth episode in this seven-part podcast produced by the Hellenic Heritage Foundation's History Committee. Some of us are experts, the rest of us are enthusiasts, but it's our dedication to preserving and retelling history, history that you can easily recount. That's what drives us to create. I'm your host, Georgia Balogianis, and one of the founding members of the History Committee. This podcast series is under the auspices of the Greece 2021 Committee, which is spearheading the global commemoration of the 200th anniversary of the Greek Revolution. Special thanks to our podcast sponsor, Agape Greek Radio. Today's episode is called Women of the Revolution. I'm pleased to welcome back Professor Sakis Gekas. Sakis is the Hellenic Heritage Foundation Chair in Modern Greek History at York University in Toronto. Hello, Sakis. Hello, Georgia. Great to be back. Great to have you here. In episode four, we spoke about the male heroes of the war, including well-known General Theodoros Kolokotronis. <laughs> and I'm not sure if it's common knowledge, but there were many women who played an active role in securing Greece's freedom from the Ottomans. And because of their contribution, we're dedicating this entire podcast to these fierce females of the war. And before we get into the details of their contribution, could you describe for me what life was like for women during that time? Of course, life in most traditional patriarchal rural societies where most women lived at the time, life was very hard. So decisions were made mostly by men for women, especially when it came to their upbringing, their education or lack thereof, uh, their marriage, uh, and most broadly their place in society. And women's life was about to get a lot harder when the war, when the Greek Revolution broke out. How did it come to be that women were active participants in the revolution? Did they ever take up arms? We know that some women fought alongside their men. This does not mean that most women were fighting. They didn't form their own uh, group, their own band uh, in uh, in the war, but they were uh, fighting alongside their men. They were active uh, participants in the revolution in other ways, of course, in supporting roles, in uh, assisting their husbands, their family, most uh, commonly, Uh, but they were active in in other ways as well. Tell me a little bit about their everyday life. That's really important, especially when we consider that it's appropriate to talk about women's lives during the revolution, uh, not only those who were fighting or those who became quite known and quite famous and celebrated as heroines during the war, but also, let's call them everyday women, which was the vast majority of women. We have to consider first that uh, the lives of Muslim women in the Peloponnese particular were essentially harmed and destroyed in many cases during the first months of the revolution when the Greek revolutionaries took over many of the areas where uh, Muslims, men and women, lived. Many were killed, others were taken prisoners, exchanged, ransomed uh, later on. Many also were sent away, so they were forced to leave if they managed to survive. Christian women's lives, on the other hand, was equally affected when they suffered, for example, the campaign of Ibrahim that we talked about in the Peloponnese, which was extremely brutal. It raised villages to the ground and took many women as slaves and women and especially young children. So their lives were equally affected by being enslaved, something that foreigner accounts report widely and they were quite shocked by it. But also the most brutal way of that affected women's lives was, of course, being killed during the, the siege 
We know a lot about some women who fought uh, very desperately at moments such as the exodus, as it's called, of Missolonghi, you know, the desperate attempt of the besieged to break out, uh, break through the Ottoman siege in April 1826. The most well-known female of the revolution was a woman named Lascarina Bubelina. She's immortalized in a statue in the harbor on the island of Spetsis, and we actually use that in our logo for this podcast. And we chose Las Carina because everyone seems to choose the typical symbolism of men fighting, such as Colocotrones. And we wanted this podcast to be a 360 overview of the revolution, providing a true balance when retelling this tale. So, Saki, tell me, who was Bubelina and why is she important to telling the story of the Greek Revolution? Well, Bubulina was an extraordinary woman. She was born in uh, 1771 in uh, a prison in Constantinople where her father was held for participating in the Orlov rebellion instigated by uh, Russians in the Aegean and uh, affecting many parts of uh, Greece, especially some of the islands and the Peloponnese. She was married at 17 to a captain ship owner of uh, Spetses at the island where she grew up. But soon after, in 1797, her husband was killed in a fight with Algerian pirates. So at the age of 26, uh, Lascarina, she was a widow with uh, three children and quite considerable fortune. Soon after, she was married to her second husband, uh, Dimitrios Bubulis, from where she got her famous name, uh, who was also tragically killed in a fight with Algerian pirates in 1811, somewhere between Malta and Spain. So when her second husband was killed, her fortune was enormous of more than 300,000 Spanish silver coins at the time, which is enormous fortune. And she managed to build her own new ship, which was very well armed. And she got permission to build the ship by the Sultan's government in uh, Constantinople, uh, precisely because she had suffered two losses. So this is a famous Agamemnon. We should note that it is the time, uh, it is uh, quite common at the time that people name their ships after ancient Greek heroes, which symbolizes uh, that they're looking up to ancient Greek heroes and warriors. This was a very impressive new ship, and there is indication that when it was built in 1820, and later it was for a few years the biggest ship that ever took part in the revolution, she was already preparing for participating to the War of Independence at some point. We don't think she was a member of the Philikieteria, the secret organization that planned the revolution, because they didn't allow women, but she was definitely in touch with people who were members. Uh, So when the war breaks out, she has a very impressive ship that she paid for and she maintains with her own band of uh, sailors, fighters, also participated in many uh, battles of the revolution, especially in its early years, so in 1821-1822. And she could have had a comfortable life, could she not have? And she had inherited this money. She was a woman of means. What actually motivated her to get involved in the war? Was life so unbearable for this woman of means under the Ottomans? It seems that life was not unbearable for her. I think she was a mixture of her personal experience, but also the people she met that she got involved and enthusiastic about uh, contributing her personal fortune uh, to the war. It's clearly that she's exceptional in so many ways. She was the only one who was able to fight in this particular way, but definitely not uh, the only woman who uh, took up arms. Sakis, could you speak to Bubulina's relationship with Kolokotronis? 
Yes, Bubulina and Kolokotronis were in-laws. Her uh, daughter was married to Panos, one of uh, Theodoros Kolokotronis' uh, sons, and uh, he was killed by those who supported the government at the time, and Kolokotronis' faction during the civil war was against uh, the, the elected uh, government. And she was actually affected uh, because of this uh, relationship uh, with Kolokotronis. So she got involved in the politics uh, of the infighting during the Greek Revolution among Greeks without probably intending to do so. There's indication that she was not uh, interested in this. At least she didn't intend to get involved because she was disappointed the return to her island of Spetses and she settled in her uh, second husband's house with what remained of her fortune which till the end of her life, which was in May 1825, when she was tragically killed because she got involved in uh, a fight uh, between her son, uh, who ran away with uh, the daughter of a well-known family and quite powerful family in Spetses, who went to her house, Bubulina's house, to, to ask her for compensation, and she was tragically killed by accident. Today, the mansion of Bubulina Spetses is a very important museum, a local museum that contains guns, letters, uh, other documents, uh, her books, and the portraits of Bubulina, which, as we mentioned in the previous podcast, was already painted and celebrated as a heroine of the Greek Revolution already during uh, the war. This legacy was also reproduced and expanded in the 20th century, when in the 59 and then another film later in the 70s, there were two movies that were made about her life and contribution. Let's turn our attention now to a woman named Mando Mavrugianos. She's often mentioned alongside Bubulina. Tell me, who was she? Mando or Magdalini, her original name was of Mavrogenis. Uh, that's where her surname comes from was a daughter of a quite well-known Fanariot family who originally came from the Cyclades uh, Islands, I think uh, from uh, Mykonos, that's where her uh, mother was born. And she was uh, also extraordinary in, uh, in the sense of the background she came from, but also her upbringing and contribution. So she was also recognized and acknowledged uh, during the revolution by people, uh, foreigners usually who visited uh, Greece, uh, about her distinctive uh, character, uh, how passionately she talked about her country's freedom, uh, how she was, you know, she was able to speak in various languages, you know, French, Italian, uh, definitely at the time. And she joined the revolution soon after her father was killed, uh, where at the time they used to live in, in the island of Tinos. Uh, after her father was killed in 1818, Mando seems to have taken a more present and more public role. So she participated in the uprising of people of Mykonos against Ottoman rule uh, in 1821. She donated large uh, sums uh, and armed ships uh, from Mykonos. And she also participated in campaigns against uh, the Turkish fleet in, uh, in the Aegean uh, more broadly. There was also a very important episode that speaks to her public role when in October 1822, she led the people of Mykonos to defend the island against an invasion of Algerian pirates to fight for them. In 1823, she was given the rank of general to uh, the the revolution, something that was also important for Bubulina. She was decorated not once, but twice, uh, first by the Russian Navy, 
and secondly by the Greek Navy uh, as vice admiral as recently as 2018. So you see that the Greek state even recently acknowledges the contribution of these women. Mando offered to the government in 1825 at the dire moment of the revolution more than 30,000 uh, piastres, the Ottoman uh, currency, and she also asked to participate in uh, the administration, which was not uh, allowed because she was uh, a woman. On the one hand, Bubulina's courage, rare in women, accompanied by a hunger for profit. And on the other hand, Mado is a patriotism in all of its purity, without a trace of selfishness, absolute self-sacrifice, and touching imprudence for her own personal future. Mado told me, I don't care what happens to me if my homeland is to be freed. When I have expended all that I can and directed it towards the sacred cause of freedom, I will then run to the Greeks' military camp and encourage them with my decision to die, if necessary, for freedom. That was Maria de Olizzi reading from the memoirs of French Péroline Jean-Francois Maxime Rebaud. English translation by Tina Pulimenu-Tsatsanis. Tell me a little bit about what it was like for a woman to actually fight in the war. Well, we know about some other women who were fighting at the war that they fought very bravely. Uh, some were killed during the war. We know, for instance, the wife of Furas, a well-known uh, captain uh, who was fighting with Odysseus Andruzos in uh, the siege of Propoli in Athens in 1825 or 26. And uh, after her husband was killed, Asimo or Asimina Gura, she took over and uh, her husband's soldiers swore an oath to fight for her. And uh, during the siege and the bombing of Athens, actually when the Erechtheo, one of the most important buildings in the Acropolis, was uh, damaged, uh, her family, uh, what was left uh, of her family, and Asimina Gura was killed. So women, we know that some women took up arms and were fighting very bravely, uh, some until the end. Pubalina had her connection to Colocotrones. Did Mando have any connections that tied her to the leaders of the war effort? Yes, Mando Mavrogenus is also known for her love affair with uh, Dimitrios Psilandis, an affair that uh, caused uh, quite a lot of gossip and uh, rumors in Anaflio, where they both lived in uh, after 1825. Uh, it seems that Ypsilandis promised uh, to uh, marry her, but according to Mavrokordatos, one of her opponents, she was abandoned and Dimitrios Ypsilandis did not keep his uh, word. After that, she went through a very tough life. So she suffered uh, poverty. Uh, she was uh, forced out of uh, Naflio in 1826 um, on accusation of uh, plotting against the government by Ioannis Coletis. And uh, she also burst into the assembly in Trizina in 1827, and uh, was sent a, this sort of memo against Ypsilandis, asking for, from the representatives in the assembly to make sure that she was uh, given some uh, compensation because of her affair and her uh, treatment by Ypsilandis. So we have uh, some information about uh, what happened to her uh, after the, the end of the war, Kapodistrias, for example, uh, recognized a contribution and her uh, sacrifice to the nation 
and he gave her the uh, honorary rank of uh, vice general and a small uh, pension, something we'll, we'll come to, to that uh, later. She also took over the managing of first orphanage in, in Afklio, which was uh, opened by Capodistrias. So a scandalous and sad ending for a woman who somehow maybe redeemed herself in the end. Tell me, how was she regarded by others? How is she remembered today? I think she was regarded very favorably by most foreigners who met her, who we have uh, portraits of her during the revolution. So Bavarians, one Danish uh, painter, they arrived to Greece and already started to sketch, you know, the drawings, which become later paintings of uh, the heroes and heroines of the revolution. So she does acquire some reputation, which was, I think, generally maintained in the years uh, ever since, as someone who, you know, contributed a lot. She was able to break through these, you know, the patriarchal structures of her time and to contribute in any way she could. Why do you think we know more about Bubulina than we do about Mando? I think because she was the woman who was actually fighting uh, at sea. Uh, she was on her ship uh, with her men. She was also on horseback in the siege uh, of Nafplio in 1822 uh, and Tripoli, in fact, in 1821. So we know that, you know, she was there fighting with men. And that, of course, created a stir. Uh, and it is part of uh, a, a broader group of women warriors that are very important recently, too, by considered by many historians as one of the least uh, researched or discussed themes in, in history, but also in, um, in the history of women specifically. Uh, and I think that's also a very important chapter in the history of the revolution as well. In the previous section, we discussed Mando Mavrugenis and Lascarina Bubulina, both women of means. Is affluence one of the ways that women bought their way into the war effort, for lack of a better word? I think it's definitely one of the ways they contributed in very significant ways. Other women fought very bravely without having any means usually in supporting their husbands. So that was the main, uh, or their families more broadly. Maybe it was their sons after the father had been killed or uh, they contributed in any other way they could. So they fought uh, and they contributed in different ways. Another story of a woman who participated in uh, various ways in the revolution was Eleni Vassos, who was born in Epirus at the start of the 19th century. And uh, when the revolution broke out, she fled to Kea, to the island, uh, near Athens. On his way to Syria, a Montenegro general who's fighting with the uh, Greek revolutionaries, Vassos Mavrovinotis, Mavrovuni being Montenegro, he stopped in Kea and fell in love with Eleni. And her parents uh, refused to let her marry him, so he stole her away from her family and left her in a guarded castle on the island of Andros, promising to return. It was in 1826 that he picked her up and they continued to Piraeus. And it was then that her involvement in the revolution uh, grew. So in all of her of the battles her husband fought, she was there alongside him as his nurse, his secretary, his confidant. And during the attempt to undo the siege of Caristo in Evia, she maintained his correspondence and was his general counsel. After the revolution, when they returned to their home in uh, Salamina, in the island of Salamina, she assigned him, herself with great zeal against uh, couple governor Capodistrias, and she supported a different political system uh, based on a Russian prototype, on a Russian support. And her home became a center of the opposition uh, against uh, the governor. But that's something we'll discuss in a later episode that relates to the politics uh, of the revolution. Did some of these brave heroines of the war have any female role models? 
Well, we know that in 1827, the painting of Suliotis's sacrificing themselves is presented for the first time. So we can assume that women who fought in the revolution did know to some extent about the brave sacrifice of uh, women of Suli, which of course has been immortalized in uh, the song that most of us know and we will hear. <laughs> The Dance of Zalogo, sung by Francis Pappas and Sofia Grigoriadis. I remember hearing this song in my youth, Sakis. What's the story behind it? In 1803, there's a rebellion by Suliotes in the mountains of Epirus in northwest Greece and the border with Albania against Ali Pasha and his rule. Uh, Suliotes are this band of people who live up in the mountains and they do mostly some fighting you know, on behalf of local rulers. And when their pact with uh, Ali Pasha breaks, they are under siege and they are forced to leave their uh, villages. So one group of uh, Suliotes, uh, and Suliotes says because the men were left fighting behind, so women and children were found on this edge of a cliff And it seems that we have some records, some evidence that from a French doctor who had converted and was serving in the army of Ali Pasha, that they performed some kind of a dance and then they jumped off the cliff after her throwing their children off uh, the cliff, you know, to their death. So this story was recorded in 1803 and this reputation persisted until I think it was 1903 that a melodrama was written by Peresiadis and performed a dance and a song, the song that we know. So we should say that, you know, this is part of, the, of commemorating the revolution and especially commemorating famous stories about the revolution and legends that, of course, they bear resemblance to the truth. They are true to some extent. We don't certainly don't know which uh, song or any song if those women were singing, Uh, plus, because their language was primarily Albanian as well as uh, Greek, you know, if they did sing anything, it was probably in Albanian, not in Greek that we know the song and poem by Persiades. But of course, it's, it's acquired a life of its own, let's say. So it's celebrated in many school commemorations. Uh, I don't know if it's still the case in Greece, but uh, it was certainly the case until a few years ago. <laughs> Farewell, poor world. Farewell, sweet life. And you, my poor country, farewell forever. Farewell, springs, valleys, mountains, and hills. Farewell, springs, and you, women of Suli. The fish cannot live on the land, nor the flower on the sand. And the women of Suli cannot live without freedom. Farewell, springs, valleys, mountains, and hills. Farewell, springs, and you, 
women of Suli. The women of Suli have not only learned how to survive, they also know how to die, not to tolerate slavery. That was Maria de Olitsis performing the lyrics to Suliotisas, the dance of Zalovar. A lot was written about the men who participated in the military battles. Could you tell me, how is it that we've come to know about the female contribution to the war? One of the ways we know more about women who fought in uh, battles and their uh, reputation is through folkloric songs and tales about the war and about women more broadly. For more on this, uh, we go to Maria Callabu. We're delighted to have her in the podcast episode. Maria is a senior lecturer at the Hellenic Studies Program at Yale uh, University. Maria, welcome to the Idea of Greece. Thank you so much for the invitation and congratulations for this excellent podcast series. I'm delighted to be with you. Thank you, Maria. Your expertise lies in Greek folklore. How important are the folkloric arts to teaching about the Greek Revolution? You know, this is a challenge for me to be next to you, Saki, a historian. For a folklorist, it's always a challenge to talk uh, about myths, legends, folk tales, and how they are a source for history. Uh, I believe that folklore, yes, indeed, is a valuable source to understand mostly the mentalities and the culture of the people. From all the folklore zones, which I just mentioned, songs, tales, legends, mostly folk songs refer constantly to the heroes and events of the Greek Revolution. As you know, in particular, we have historic songs or cleftic songs that narrate about battles, fights, male, female warriors, about abductions, wins and losses, and many, many more. The founder of Greek folklore, Nikolaos Politis, at the beginning of the 20th century, said that folk tales, whereas folk tales blur the local with global elements, folk songs, however, mirror historic events. And from folk songs, we can trace the national character. And here I mean by that, that Politis at that time was uh, had this nationalistic uh, tendency to find what makes Greek in the folklore material. So besides the material that is really abundant, uh, uh, the folklore arts describe as the battles and the fights and the warriors, men and women, I think um, folklore is important for one more reason. We know that some folk songs, Greek folk songs, influence some European philhellenes. For instance, one of the very early collections of folk songs by Claude Fourier in 1824 Um, His songs influenced uh, French painters, and we have paintings about Suliotises, about the heroism and selflessness of Suliotises. Of course, the paintings by French philhellenes do not represent the battles as we know, more they demonstrate an exotic and strange character rather than the historic event. But this is just to mention for you that folkloric arts are important for various reasons to understand the war of and, and the Greek Revolution. Maria, could you tell me, though, folkloric songs, what do they teach us about the women who participated in the war? Yes, thank you. Of course, as you can imagine, the majority of the songs uh, sing men. However, there is material and both folk songs and folk tales that uh, talk about women who participated in wars and demonstrated extra braveness. 
We have some functions which show women supporting their men, providing them food, water, and other supplies they need for their everyday life and their battles. Besides those types of folk songs, we have also a group of songs of, of women who took the guns and sacrificed themselves, also their children, their older parents. They didn't want to succumb to the enemy, so they fought against the Turks. And here, of course, we've mentioned already, here are the Suliotises, a group of songs about Suliotises. And we have folk songs with named women about Vespo Javelena, Leno Bocari, or Mosho, Haido, Leni, etc. Um, in one song about the heroines of Suli, we hear that, let me just give you two rhymes, Suli's girls are men in heart and none will let their guest depart. Uh, other songs, very, very famous songs, are about Vespo Javelena, uh, that uh, Vespo battles together with her daughters, daughters-in-laws, with her sons and daughters, and also with her grandchildren. So the whole family takes, she takes the family uh, to battle against and fight the Turks. Another uh, collections uh, in the middle of the 19th century, they talk about the Suliotis Diamanto, uh, Turks killed her relatives and she decided to seek revenge. And she joined the group of clefts and for many years she was not recognized. She was disguised as a man. And she even became the chief of them. She became the Capetanios, the chief commander of that group. So there are songs about Suliotises and some cleft girls uh, with names on them. When you're talking about the Suliotises, I'm I'm taken back to something that I remember hearing when I was younger. Elefteria y Thanatos. Is that associated to these women? Them falling um, off the cliff and throwing their babies? Yes, yes. Ivespo can polemo, and she says she will never accept uh, the Turkish um, man in her life. Yes, exactly. This is where it comes uh, in various, you know, variations, in several variations. Absolutely, yes. And you had mentioned it um, just a moment ago about cleftic songs. Could you tell us a little bit more about that so our listeners can understand its relevance to this uh, time? Yes, uh, clefts, I guess you have already explained, these are the bandits, yes, they were regarded as criminals by the law, but uh, as carriers of justice by the folk imagination. And the narrators, the oral narrators, were inspired by stories related to their lives and actions. Cleftic songs is a group, a category of folk songs. We have the heroic songs, the cleftic songs, and romantic songs, etc., etc., and we find in those cleftic songs the motif of the girl cleft, Tokorici cleftis. And what is it about? It's a girl disguised as a man fighting together with the other clefts. There is the only one way that a woman can go to this men uh, area, only disguised as a man. And as I mentioned before, there are cases where these women were very brave, their uh, real gender was not revealed, and they were even <laughs> came up to be chief, to be, um, the, the, yes, the commanders of chief for those groups. Um, there are several types of these songs. For instance, one group says that uh, the girl who 
she's in love with one cleft, a male cleft, and she asks him to take her with him. She doesn't want to be left behind and she wants to be with him and fight with him. Other groups, other songs, in other songs we have names of girls, usually the name Helen without any other connotation. So we don't know which Helen. So Eleni, Eleni uh, on the battle. And I think though this naming the girls, um, this comes a little bit closer to reality. To go back to your first question, how much do they depict reality and history? It's a, it's a way to uh, combine it with the real events. Uh, I think the main characteristics of these songs is the braveness, the courage of these girls as clefts. And they are based on real episodes and they are narrating the experiences, the memories of the folk about those uh, women. Uh, Sometimes, you know, historians are too picky in the sense of, you know, sticking to their well-known sources and well-trodden archives uh, to find out information. But as we know, Spiros Azdrahas has written a great analysis of, you know, cleftic songs and what can they actually tell us about the revolution. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about this, sort of the reliability and uh, songs as evidence issue, as well as whether you think the sacrifice of Suliotis and other women during the revolution has to do to some extent about liberty or death, the very the famous slogan of the revolution that Georgia talked about earlier, but whether it does have to do with honor, shame, of trying to avoid uh, shame and maintaining you know, a woman's uh, reputation, does it have to do with that too? These are very important questions. Um, let me start from, yes, the first one you mentioned, what is their historic value? And as I mentioned at the beginning, this is a challenge for me to be next uh, to historians, but uh, I do believe that they uh, perceive reality in symbolic terms, not only songs, but also folk tales. And we didn't mention any folk tales so far, which is my specialty and my, yeah, my, my big love. Please do. Thank you. Well, in folk tales, we have anonymous women. We don't have named heroines as we have in folk songs. And mostly the main motif in folk tales is the motif of the disguised as a man or woman, which we've seen also in eclectic songs. And I believe this um, uh, uh, recurring motif of the woman as a soldier, for instance, and a very common title, Ithodora sto strato, Theodore in the army, um, they uh, demonstrate how uh, prevalent it was in the mentalities of the people that women were fighters, women were warriors, they did go to the war. And again, because the social norms were so strict, they were not allowed to go as women. And they had to preserve their honor, as you mentioned. And uh, that's why they went as men, disguised as a man, and they were not... It was not. It wouldn't be honorable for them to lose the battles. And yes, I agree with you. All these songs and uh, stories actually uh, underline underline the uh, the uh, strong identity of being a Hellene, being a strong woman, faithful to country and to the family. So the narrative of um, home and family. So now, if there are historical sources, as I mentioned at the beginning, uh, we shouldn't see history only as a narrative of historical events, one after another, as a linear history. I would like to see history also embedding social history, 
and the mentalities of the people, the culture, the beliefs, the norms. And through these stories, we can see the symbolisms and uh, we can see what is prevalent in the society uh, in, in a more subtle way. And I think, yes, together with the strict historical events, we can uh, um, accomplish a better view of the revolution, a better, uh, more around uh, knowledge of the time with this material as well. And since your expertise, your education, your knowledge is around the folkloric arts, tell us a little bit more about how we can carry these stories forward about these women through folkloric arts. Thank you. We do. We do unconsciously. This is our conscious unconsciousness. You know, they, we do already. And I don't think there is one child that has not sung this song that you just mentioned before we've heard uh, or we haven't heard. We have. There is no child who hasn't been dressed as a um, tzolias or um, um, little girl in a folk costume. And there are ways, and that's why these are important, because they are not realized as such, but we do perpetuate this knowledge from one generation to another. How can we bring those stories to the forefront? How can we make that connection between, yes, we dress up because it's traditional, we march in a parade, but how do we make that connection consciously, that this is what it means to dress like this? (laughs) Well, you touch now another difficult subject, <laughs> education, <laughs> and how do we teach our children, if this is the um, uh, question referring to, how do we teach our children, what does this mean, actually? Uh, because, of course, this has positive and negative sides. Um, it can have it can have nationalistic elements. As we know, folklore started as a nationalistic science. So, but on the other hand, we can learn history and we can learn mentalities and cultures, how how things were perceived earlier before us, and how do we still being um, recognize those things. This is a big uh, discussion. I think we have to talk with teachers, with educators, and we need a critical view um, how to incorporate those in a beautiful way, both aesthetically way, beautiful way, but also critical perception of that. Thank you, Maria. I'm sure many of us will look at these songs and stories about the revolution with a new eye. Thank you so much for being here. That was Maria Kaliambu of Yale University. When husbands and sons went to war, women were left behind. How did they support themselves? How did life look like for them? Well, we know in 1826, 27, 28, when uh, the life of most women and uh, men and everyone who's in the Peloponnese, for example, has become increasingly hard, people are starving. So their lives were uh, completely destroyed uh, in for several years. And that is why we know that very early on, from the late 1820s and early 1830s, many women who were left widowed and asking for their children, the orphans, uh, are asking for pensions. And the Greek state, the Greek uh, provisional government in the early 1820s, and later on the Greek national uh, government, the Greek state, uh, promised and did did deliver to several cases, but not to all that were needed, small but important pensions to women whose husbands or sons were killed during the war. So there is the beginnings of uh, a social policy. It's not a welfare state, of course, at all. 
but this is the beginnings of a social policy that affects and is justified only to for women who fought and contributed in this way through their families uh, loss let's say the husbands and sons in the war which is quite important you know something similar does not happen for instance for the widows and orphans of uh, the american revolution until several years after the end of the uh, american revolution in 1770s so it is quite important uh, to note women did sacrifice quite a bit in the revolution as much as many of the men during the war did they gain any powers in the new republic when it was formed i would say probably uh, not to a certain extent at least uh, because they are still constrained by a very you know very patriarchal society even in independent greece but what they do uh, gain is uh, protection uh, sometimes from the law from arbitrary acts uh, that happened during war times uh, such as being enslaved or killed so their uh, lives fared better because the war ended and they were allowed you know to continue their lives as best as they could but in other ways their uh, rights let's say did not improve significantly i think greek women like women all over the world would have to wait several decades uh, for that at least the vast majority of women who were sort of lower uh, class or uh, the poorest another one in the books and another one filled with amazing details and new aspects of the war god bless the memory of the women of the revolution sakis you're a wealth of information as always thank you so much for being here george it's my pleasure We spent the last two episodes talking about Greek heroes, but the Greek revolution inspired people throughout the world. Next time, we look at those who wanted to help the Greeks and those who fought right alongside them. Stay tuned for that. This episode was produced by the Hellenic Heritage Foundation. Special thanks to our team behind the scenes for helping make this happen. Our researchers, Helen Walsh, Tina Pulimenu Tatsanis, and Anastasia Tsagrinos. Our editor, Stampapulkis, our historian, Sakis Gekas, and our original music composed by Dimitris Petsalakis. Special thanks to our guests, Maria Kaliambu of Yale University and our performer, Maria Diolitsi. Our executive producer is Sandra Gionis. This podcast wouldn't be possible without our sponsor, Agape Greek Radio, and the Greece 2021 Committee, and the inspiring stories of all who fought in the Greek Revolution and their sacrifice. I'm Georgia Balogiannis. The Idea of Greece returns in two weeks with our next installment. This podcast can be found on Spotify, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts, and hhf.ca. Hhf.ca.